Hey everyone, we are so excited to the reaction in the community for the pod. I need to take a moment of your time to tell you to please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or hit the follow button on Spotify. We are in the humble beginning stage of our show and establishing a listener base is of paramount importance and will help us determine the frequency of future episodes. Thanks and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to News Little Podcast, an audio program discussing the almost 50-year history of News Little Theater and the backstage antics and stories that come along with running a community theater in a small town. I'm your host, Matt Gore, and we are coming to you from NLT Stage and Base of Operations, the little log cabin located on the banks of the News River in Smithfield, North Carolina. We lovingly refer to it as The Hut. All right, everybody. Uh, thank you for joining us here on a, another episode of News Little Podcast. We have a very special episode for you today. I have a uh, gentleman sitting across the table from me who I'm very excited to talk to. Um, I've wanted to get him on since the very beginning. A lot of our uh, uh, previous guests have had stories about him and uh, mm-hmm. spoken very fondly of him. And uh, I I've, I, probably worked with him as uh as me an actor and him as a director more than any other person I believe I think it's six times and I've learned a lot from this gentleman and I am incredibly excited to introduce Tony Pender to the podcast how you doing Tony oh good Matt thanks for having me thank you for coming I really do appreciate it um well let's let's dive right in I don't want to waste any time here uh because I I do I do see this as a true privilege to get you on here as one-on-one with a conversation thank you brother I appreciate that and uh so what's it been like for you? Uh, everybody has their own stories of uh, dealing with uh, 2020 and the pandemic. What's it been like for you in, on your end, sir? Oh, man. It, it, it's, I guess it's the same with me as it has been with everybody else. I'm missing people a lot. Mm. Um, one of the biggest reasons why I, I constantly come back to community theaters because that's what it is. It's a community. Mm. And not being able to be part of that has been probably the biggest challenge. Um, I've been able to develop some, an online presence, and that's great. Mm-hmm. But it's not the same as actually being in the same room with people trying to accomplish a, a goal together. Right. Um, and, you know, sitting out on the porch and shooting the crap and <laughs> that kind of thing. And I, I, I did as, almost as much directing on the porch as I did in the actual theater. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, now, well, give me... Uh let the listeners know what it is you do for a living. Well, you know, what pays the bills for you? Oh, boy. Um, I, I teach. That's probably my biggest source of income is I teach acting and I teach uh, stagecraft, mm-hmm. um, how to build, how to create, how to paint, how to use a two-by-four, that kind of thing. Um, I, my biggest group of, te- of people I teach right now are young people, mm-hmm. um, which I think is good. Is probably one of my biggest things. I think that you know, I'm not getting any younger. Somebody else has got to be able to do this. Um, and the things that I've learned along the way, I really, really loved. And I want to make sure that I can pass that along to other people that I work with, especially younger people. Um, and especially now, because uh, getting them an opportunity to express themselves in any way, shape, or form has been uh, probably the biggest joy. I had to write, a, uh, I had to write a, a letter of recommendation to one of my previous students because they were interviewing for School of the Arts, the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really took me back because when that person 
first came into our group, they must have been a freshman in high school. And at that point in time, they were just a visual artist. They liked to draw, they liked to paint. And they were just looking for a, a new way to express themselves. And when they got into the theater, um, just giving them the opportunity to do things in a different way, to express themselves in a different way, um, has been a real joy. And it was great to see this person move on and take that somewhere so that, mm -hmm. that they're not just you know, drawing pictures in their notebook at school anymore. They're actually going to be able to turn this into a, a career. So yeah, yeah, that's one of the biggest things I've been doing over the, over the pandemic. That and trying to broaden my own horizons to see if there are things that I could see better, do better. Um, <laughs> like all of us, I've had to become a techno wizard yeah. <laughs> so that I could have that online presence. And so that could keep that teaching part up. Um, I think one of, the, one of the things I'm proudest of at the moment is one of my young people uh, took part of the ESU Shakespeare competition. I placed second. Awesome. So she's going to regionals, playing Henry V. Awesome. <laughs> which I think is freaking awesome, um, especially for somebody that age. Um, she's a, a sophomore in high school and had never done Shakespeare before in her life. I was way too scared of it. Um, but once we got a chance to actually work together and to work with another group of people who were all trying to tackle this whole thing of what Shakespeare is together, um, she fell in love with it. She fell in love with the language, the way to express herself, and the fact that, she, that the material was good enough that you could fit it to anybody who stepped into it because it was pretty universal. And that's yeah. been good. Yeah, we, uh, we, for a theater pro podcast, we really haven't discussed Shakespeare a whole lot. We've, we've uh, mentioned it briefly. Um, you directed uh, the first ever, and as of now only, uh, Shakespeare <laughs> production. I want to change that, by the way. Um, the uh, uh, only Shakespeare production we've had here at NLT, a very interesting version of Midsummer Night's Dream that's very North Carolina-centric, very, very regional-centric. Talk a little bit about that. How did you come up with the concept of setting Midsummer in a in a rural setting that that has like tobacco barns and you know yeah. old Coca Cola signs and stuff like that? How did that come about? Oh wow! Uh, well, one of the things that I'd always been taught as part of my training was that um, Shakespeare was a was a writer who wrote of his time and of the place of the place he was in, but he wrote it in such a way that um, it could be taken anywhere. That was kind of the whole idea. Uh, he, he was, uh, that was kind of the whole idea of w when he was originally writing was that he understood that he was going to have to pack this show up and take it somewhere. So he, uh, he knew that it was going to be different in every single place that, that it was going to be performed, so he wrote it accordingly. Um, one of the other things, one of the reasons I felt comfortable enough to do it here was, and probably one of the reasons why I'm going to keep working here as often as I get asked to, is that this particular community of individuals, well, this particular community of people who perform, really are the most giving human beings I think I may have ever met in my life. They are always willing to take their own experiences and their own lives and make them part of any production that they do. And they're not afraid to put it up here on stage um, and 
with a 110 seat theater, you can pretty much guarantee that about a third of the audience is going to be somebody in their family. Um, so, um, and still they're not afraid to share that. So when we, when it came to doing a Shakespeare piece, I was like, we have to take not just the words, but the people who live here and put their, make their experience part of this show so that it's not just a, here's some group of really smart people who do things that we could never do, showing us what things might look like. It was more a case of, here we are together exploring this material that everybody thinks is so hard and so deep and finding ourselves in it. Um, and that's really, what, uh, that's really what Shakespeare has always been about. It's been about looking at the material and finding yourself in it. Mm -hmm. And he makes it pretty easy, honestly, if you approach it that way. Um, yeah, if you unlock it. If you, if you initially, if you get past the language and mm -hmm. see what he's trying to do, it's just like anybody can do this. You're absolutely right. One of the things I think that surprised most of the people that I've been teaching Shakespeare to over the past year and a half <laughs> since this whole thing happened was the fact that <laughs> everybody thought that because it was poetry it had to be done a specific way, but brother, he wrote it in iambic pentameter, and iambic means that it's, the stress is on the second beat of the syllable, right? That means that it's ba-bump, ba-bump, ba-bump. It also means that it, since it's in pentameter that it's five beats, five of those iambics per line. That means ba-bump, 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 ba-bump. The other thing that sounds like that Ba-bump, 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 is the human heartbeat. Once you get that in your head and you start reading, the, start reading the lines again, you can feel that, not just in your head and understanding it, but you can feel that in your heart and the way it beats. And you start to understand then why the stresses are where they are and why the words are where they are, because it makes your heart beat faster, mm -hmm. because it makes your heart beat slower. And then it becomes, it's not about poetry anymore, it's about how this person, how this person's heart is beating as they speak. Mm. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and, it, and it really has been a, one of the things I've been able to do now as part of that is, is take some of the other language that we use. Because writers are having been being married to one. Yeah, yeah, Adrian Pender. Uh, writers are real special people. They understand the way words are crafted. Not just the way sentences and paragraphs and stories are crafted. Writers understand how words are crafted. And they use those words in a very specific way. Um, to let in the inner life of a human being out. Um, and <laughs> it's been almost as fun finding that in other writers as it has been in finding it in Shakespeare. I think Shakespeare was the, was the kicker and the kick off, um, but it's always been there. Um, you know, for example, I've, I've done To Kill a Mockingbird I don't know how many times. Um, I know I've done it twice here. Mm -hmm. But I'd love to be able to do it. I, I want to continue to come back to it. And the reason is because every time you come back to it, the way it was written, you find more and more and more. And that's because of how it was written and 
how much was put into the words that were chosen and the order that they were chosen and who says them and what happens in between when those people speak those words. Mm. So you mentioned uh, that you're married to a writer. I sure um, am. <laughs> and uh, she's a very accomplished writer, I might yeah, add. Uh, she is. Very impressive resume. And <clears throat> uh, we can talk about some of her work briefly. There's, she actually has uh, written a play that was turned into a movie, correct? Yes, she has. Yes, she has. Um, the, uh, the premiere of that play was at Theater in the Park down there in Raleigh. Uh, it was a play called In. And what, briefly, what was that about? It's about the relationship between Charles Gilpin and Eugene O'Neill when he wrote... Uh, the Emperor Jones, because it was originally written for Charles Gilpin, um, and how their relationship developed and changed over the process of developing that play into one of the the biggest, one of Eugene O'Neill's biggest hits, and one of the biggest hits of that particular time period. It also happened to be the very first show that an African American actor was allowed to play an African American mm -hmm. on stage. Mm. Uh, on a Broadway stage. So that was a whole thing. And eventually what ends up happening is the focus of the, well, the, the key to the whole title of the play, which is N, is about uh, Gilpin refusing to say the N-word. Mm -hmm. um, and O'Neill was <laughs> a writer and he chose a specific word for a specific reason and was adamant about it being used. And eventually it blew up into a huge, huge fight where Gilpin started taking even more liberties with the script and O'Neill became more and more outraged about it. So it blew up into a huge, big fight until O'Neill fired Gilpin and hired Paul Robeson to play the uh, Emperor Jones, which really... Robeson was a pretty uh, famous actor up at that point at any, anyway, but uh, giving him the lead role in Emperor Jones really kicked off his career, and Paul Robeson went on to become a, a famous, huge um, African-American actor of his day. And Gilpin ended up losing everything, and in fact, he ended up uh, passing away at the chicken ranch that he bought his mother when he was in money. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And he's one of those people that's kind of lost to history. Uh, luckily enough, my wife found that she was a distant relative. Um, because of Gilpin? She, oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah interesting. Wow, wow. Yeah, she's a distant relative, um, like five removed. But one of the things that she's always done is she's loved researching her own family history, and she's turned that into a couple of things. She's turned it into a book and she's turned it into another play. And when she found out that Gilpin was one of her relatives, she really started digging into his story and came to find out how much, exactly how much of an impact he had on the ability of African-Americans to be working actors. It's not like they're in a perfect place now, but Gilpin made it possible for African-American actors to actually step on stage as themselves. He's one of the people who ended the, who began the ending, let's put it that way. He began the ending of the era of blackface, mm -hmm. which I think is a great thing and something she's really proud of. And she did a, a really beautiful job, in my personal opinion, of portraying what that was like. Um, one of the things that has happened is that a number of people 
or a number of organizations that have looked at the material and quite often they've come back with feedback for her and one of the biggest pieces of feedback she got she gets is could this be could this be stronger could this make a stronger statement and one of the things I'm probably most proud of her for is the fact that she said no it's not a, a statement for a cause it is about a human being's life and I'm gonna stick to that it's about this man's life um, and I've got to be true to that and I have I mean it's it's been a challenge for her but she stuck through it all the way and I will never cease my admiration for her for that in my humble opinion that takes true courage it really does and you know especially now I think mm -hmm. it's important that we understand that people are people, regardless of what, what makes them different from us, they're still human beings. That means that they get up every morning, they put their clothes on the same way everybody else does, they eat when, uh, like everybody else does, <laughs> they go to the bathroom like everybody else does, um, and the fact that they make it through day by day by day uh, is good enough. So transitioning into... Uh you as a director mm. now that I, I you're the best director i've ever worked with and I, it's probably because i've worked with you a lot but I, well, the God concept of a theater director wasn't uh, defined it was defined as as an idea by ruth mills my mm. my theater arts teacher mm. like this is what they do but mm. as just a true artist i really didn't get it till i saw you work i appreciate that man God bless you for saying so well i you your uncanny ability to draw incredible performances out of most of the actors you come across is is something that that you make it look so easy and i know <laughs> it is not <laughs> yeah, no it's not and i couldn't always uh, and honestly man i couldn't always do that i mean if those if there are people listening who 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 worked with me back when i first started here back in the late 90s and early 2000s they'll remember mm -hmm. i was not exactly the best director in the world um, God knows. It took. Mm. Well, let's take it back then. Let, since you brought it up, let's go ahead and take it back. Let, let's talk about your origin at News Little Theater. Okay. Wow. How'd you get here? <laughs> oh, geez. Um, okay. So, honestly, growing up, I grew up in Four Oaks. So, I, I didn't even get into this whole theater thing until I was a senior in high school. <laughs> I played one of Doolittle's flunkies in uh, My Fair Lady with Debbie Elam playing Liza Doolittle <laughs> um, and, and got bit by the bug. Um, but I didn't follow it up until, uh, until years later. Um, and when I did, I, I followed it up as a, being an actor. Uh, so I approached this whole thing from being an actor first. Uh, and I think that's probably, if, I'm, if I've got any talent as a director, that's probably where the roots of it came from, was actually being an actor and being on the other end of the stick. Um, and understanding what worked for me and what didn't. Mm -hmm. um, and I went to School of the Arts, and when I left School of the Arts, one of the things that my, the assistant dean said, he called me in and, and talked to me about me leaving and about what I was going to do next, and he goes, listen, from what I've seen here, you should give, your hand, you should give a, a try at directing. And I thought he was an idiot. And I was honestly upset that he said that because I wanted to be an actor. Mm -hmm. um, but honestly, he was pretty, uh, he was pretty Cassandra-like in that one. Um, 
years later, I went on, I went on and did an acting, did my acting thing, and I did stage performance, and then went on to film and television and all that kind of mm-hmm. good stuff. You were okay. Let's briefly talk about that. <laughs> oh shit. I want, I've always wanted to talk. I've always wanted to talk about that without yeah. sounding gauche or like what? or like. Tell me about the the, the, the famous stuff you did, yeah, Tony. No, no, no. You know, uh, you were on a. Co- I know, I know, I know. But you were on a couple episodes of Matt, Matt Lock. Yeah. Okay. Um, you had. I've, I've got to chime in here because it was on the other day, and we were flipping through the channels, and Stephen. I stopped, and I always stop when I see it on, and Stephen goes. Is that the one Tony's in? And I was like, I don't think so. And we were like, we watched for a few minutes. Like, no, this isn't it. We can't flip it. Oh, it it can be found. The internet exists. Oh, child, the internet definitely Uh, exists. uh, All right. We we might cut this out because this might be totally wrong. But I remember early on, uh, were you in a movie with Robert Duvall? Oh, yeah. Okay. Tell me about that. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, it's called Ramblin' Rose. You were running away. It was a scene of him chasing Mm -hmm. you on a porch, and you're running away. Oh, yeah. And it's like a baby Tony Pender running away from a a mad Robert Duvall. Which was really funny at the time, because honestly, I'm taller than Bobby Duvall, um, which is hysterical. But yeah, no, it was great. I got a chance to actually meet the man, and he's a brother. When he is acting, he is not even playing. He is not even playing. We got into... the the film was shot out in the middle of nowhere, Burgall <laughs> Burgall Beach, um, North Carolina, out in the middle of a field, like literally twenty miles from the nearest other habitation. So it was a self enclosed kind of set, and. Uh, <laughs> We all had our own honey wagons, of course, and uh, and Duvall had his own trailer set up. Um, and I remember the day we went to shoot, they picked us all up at our wagons, and they went by to pick up Bobby at his place. And he has this he had this little terrier, his pet dog, with him, and playing with a balloon and shit. At any rate, um, so we picked him up, or we tried to. Because apparently somebody had on set had made him mad, and he proceeded to come out with a series of expletives and said, "I'll walk mm-hmm. to the set," which is not a small distance from where the wagons were, because it had to be. Um, but once we got on the set, again, brother was real specific about what he wanted to do and how he and how he did it. So there's some truck driver driving down the road going, "Is that Bobby Duvall with the terrier uh-huh. on the side of the road?" Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much, wow. <laughs> but you had to be. You it wasn't. It wouldn't just be a truck driver. It would be like somebody, you know, in their pickup, uh-huh. going down a dirt road between tobacco fields. Um, <laughs> I loved you in Tender Mercies. Exactly, <laughs> and he'd probably you know like, cuss them as they leave. <laughs> um, no, but when when it came to our time to actually work, gosh, he was focused. Um, he was really focused. And honestly, as a, as a newer person involved in, in filming, it was really good to have that. In fact, one of the things I found is that regardless of how big people are, when it comes time to act, we're all doing the same thing. Um, and the whole sense of community that you get here in a small community theater, you get the same thing on a set. Um, and especially when you're working with bigger people, unless they're total jerks to begin with, which, you know, some people are, but unless they're total jerks to begin with, that they're part of that little community, 
and they, just like everybody else, do just as much work to make things happen as they can. Um, I know one of the things that we've always talked about is in rehearsal, you try everything, right? Mm -hmm. You try everything, and if this one doesn't work, then you try it a different way. Nothing epitomizes that more is when they were filming Billy Bathgate. They were filming Billy Bathgate in Wilmington, and Dustin Hoffman had like a three-line scene. Mm -hmm. And he literally made us do 27 takes. Now, when you say he made you, are yeah. you saying Dustin Hoffman made you? Oh, yeah. You? So he was like, no, it's not he's right. He's in the scene. No, he's in the scene. Okay. Playing a character that has three lines. Uh-huh. And he asked, he, told, he got us to redo it 27 times so he could do those three lines. How Every, many takes were you averaging so far? Huh? Before, how many takes were you averaging so far? One. Mm. <laughs> wow. But it wasn't my lines, it was his. That was the whole point, is he wanted to make sure that he could do every single permutation of those three lines that he could possibly do. And he ended up doing 27 takes of it. Wow. Yeah, no kidding. Well, I mean, you know, if he, did, if he did 27 versions, then they could cut it however they wanted to, and they yeah. didn't. <laughs> yeah. At that point, though, at that point, <laughs> the director's like, let's choose the worst one. Yeah. <laughs> but mm. no, no. Um, oh, listen, it's been... Whew, filming and TV stories, oh, my Lord, my Lord. <laughs> it's a whole different animal than... Well, not a whole different, but it's a different animal than working on, on, on stage and working live. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> wow. So, what got you? What got you from having a uh, a small uh, acting career to mm. transitioning to teaching and directing oh. and, and arriving here at NLT? Well, I've always been teaching. Um, I got <laughs> I fell into that one completely by accident. One of my acting buddies was teaching at a little Montessori school, um, and got a gig and asked me if I could take his classes for him. And I was like, he's like, they're small classes. It's a Montessori school. They let you pretty much do what you want to. So I was like, okay, sure. What are you doing so far? And he told me. So I jumped in and did it and fell in love. Um, that's probably one of, the, uh, one of the luckiest breaks that I've had is I started my actual teaching at a Montessori school, mm -hmm. which is sens sensory-based anyway. They're, the Montessori teaching method is, is very focused on... Uh, whole teaching and it's sensor and sensory teaching um and as you know acting is all about senses and mm -hmm. awareness and that kind of good thing so it was a really 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 good fit um god i could tell you some stories about that too <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, we got time uh, yeah, well oh the whole uh go ahead listen listen uh, no, there's a heads up folks this might be a two-parter go ahead Let's see <laughs> no there's a combination there's a combo story here about my film career and mm -hmm. and um, and teaching. So I'd been teaching at this Montessori school for about three years, and George Lucas wanted to film a, uh, do a film called Radio Land Murders, and it was the same time he was shooting Jurassic Park. Um, and they were doing Jurassic Park on the West Coast. They were doing Radio Land Murders here on the East Coast, um, and I got cast in in Radio Land and worked on that. Oh man, it was a long, long job. Forgive me, Tony. Do you mean Spielberg? No, I mean George Lucas. Okay, I apologize. Please continue. No, no. Because Lucas backed, um, backed uh, Jurassic Park. Okay. And he got the dailies. Because I remember being in the room when they were getting dailies from Jurassic Park. Okay. Because when he was on the East Coast, he'd get Jurassic Park dailies. When he was on the West Coast, he would get Radio Land Murder dailies. So... <laughs> 
so I worked on that. I must have worked on that film for three, maybe four months. Which film? Radio Land. Okay. I must have worked on that film for like three, maybe four months. And we wrapped it. It was great. I was in a bunch of scenes. Got to work with some great people, some big names, all that kind of good stuff. It's back when Joey Lawrence was still a thing. <laughs> um, yeah. Brian Ben Ben, Larry Miller. Uh, I have heard of Larry Miller. He's yeah. a comedian. Yeah, he is. He's a good one, too. At any rate, so was Brian Ben Ben. He had his own TV show on HBO there for a while. Um, at any rate, so we wrapped the film, and I'm teaching, um, and all that kind of good stuff because I've been teaching the whole time. And uh, I was the only drama teacher in the school. Um, and we had developed it to a point so that I was teaching the entire school, kindergarten to sixth grade. Um, and at the end of the year, we set it up so that each segment, K, uh, K through two, two through four, fifth and sixth, each one of those groups of kids got to do their own little final thing. So we were rolling right along, and that, bruh, it was a good show. We were doing, uh, it was a good show. The little people were doing rainbow fish. So we had been working the entire year, really, because it it's usually a year-long project. And at the end of um, Christmas break, when we come back, it, it, we really knuckled down into it, and then we did our final production in May at the end of school. So I get a call about three weeks before the end of school from the producers for Radioland saying, we need you in LA, for, in LA for reshoots because we're adding people to the film and you're the, the thread that ties them into the film. So they're expanding your character in the script. Yeah, they're expanding my character, and the only reason that they're expanding my character is because they're adding other characters to the script. Mm -hmm. Which is understandable because one of the characters that they're adding is Rosemary Clooney. So my agent is like, Tony, you got to do this. And I'm like, I would love to. When do they want to shoot? And they went in three weeks. And I'm like, Mary James, I can't. My kid, I, there's nobody to take my place. And we're three weeks away from these kids doing their production. I cannot leave now. I mean, even their English teacher couldn't continue what we're doing because I'm working with the entire school. And we've got but a whole... Tony, baby, it's Rosemary Clooney. Exactly, Come on now. Exactly, which is what she said. And I was like, Mary James, I can't do it. I can't. You're just going to have to tell them no. Uh, and Mary James thought I was an idiot. Wow. Um, but, you know, I made a commitment to these guys, and we've been working on it all year long. There's no way I'm going to leave them in the last minute going, you guys got this. You know, they're little people, man. Yeah. They're not going to understand that. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> Mary James said, let me see what I could do, and she did, and they went back and forth for about a week. So <laughs> what ended up happening was about, let's see, what's the, it must have been Monday. Yeah. My kid's show is on Thursday night. Monday morning at 5 o'clock, they knocked on my door in downtown Wilmington and had a limousine waiting and drove me to the Wilmington airport, put me on a one-way flight to LAX. Um, got me there. A limo met me at LAX. They took me to set. 
Got every got everything ready, made sure that my costume matched, my makeup matched, all that kind of good stuff. And I shot a couple of prerequisites. We went through the day. Um, it was Monday, Tuesday. Spent all day Tuesday shooting. All day Wednesday shooting. Thursday morning, they picked me up uh, uh, at my hotel in a limousine, drove me to, the L to LAX, put me on a direct flight back to Wilmington, North Carolina, picked me up at the Wilmington Airport in a limousine and drove me to my kid's show. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, number one, it taught me that you got to stick to your guns. And number two, it taught me that if you do good enough work, people recognize it and they'll move heaven and earth. They'll fight for you. To make it happen. Yeah. Um, and both Mary James and the producers did that. Uh, Mel, the director... You'd know him because he's one of the Monty Python group from uh, Mel Smith. Mel Smith, yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, he was the him. director. Um, and he fought for me. So oh. I'll never forget that as long as I live. Um, but that's kind of the, it's one of the things that, that kind of thing happened quite a lot. Um, nothing that extreme, of course, but I got a really good reputation, especially being a one-take Charlie. People would call me and say, We've got a sh scene that we need to shoot uh -huh. tomorrow. Can we fax you the sides? That's awesome. And, and you go in tomorrow and shoot it. You know, yeah, exactly. And we get it done. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And we get it done in one take. Mm. So there was a big demand. Um, there was a big demand for me to work. Well, it, was, it, was, it wasn't huge, but it was pretty steady. Um, not a lot of big stuff, but some consistent stuff. I got to try to kill Danny with a backhoe. Um, Who? <laughs> uh, Danny's one of the characters on Matlock. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, that's all right. I know. No worries. No worries, man. I'm sorry. My grandparents definitely watch Matlock. Yeah, I know. <laughs> did, well, you get, did you get to meet Andy Griffith? Oh, boy, did I get to meet him. We're in North Carolina. we got to talk about Andy Griffith. Yeah. I, I, I would be fired from the podcast if we didn't at least bring up Andy Griffith. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, listen, at the point that I met him, it was later on in his career and later on in his life, and he was of an age, and... You could tell he was from North Carolina, brother, because he was just like my dad. Uh, yeah. I have heard stories about late stage Andy Griffith. Yeah. And, uh... Oh, listen. He keeps, listen. We start when we start, and when we're done, we're done. Oh, my. Is it... I don't care if you are or not. We're done. Was, were you the one that told me the story that at 5 o'clock, he's like, yep, I'll see you guys tomorrow. Yeah. He was done. He's, he's yeah. Well, I, we could be in the middle of a scene. And it was time to him to leave. See you, boys. Hmm. See you tomorrow. I mean, he's an old man. I mean, he's, he's, he's I mean. Uh. No, well, I kind of, well, you know, because when he was in, when he was in the thick of his career, brother, he was everywhere all the time yeah. and had no freaking life. Hmm. He had no life. And as he got up there, he was like, I will have the life I want because I want it <laughs> and I've worked hard for it. Got to give him good kudos for that. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, was he a grumpy old man? Yeah, he'd give Jack <laughs> Lemmon a run for his money. <laughs> Jack Lemmon was grumpy? Yeah, yeah. What did you work with him on? Oh, my God. 
I don't even remember. It was a real quick in and out kind of thing. I was on the side of the <laughs> You're set. You're just dropping names. I'm just like, Jack, no, Jack no, Lemon, no, what are you talking no, about? No, brother. Listen, the, the, at the end of the day, everybody puts on their pants the same way. I know. I know. And we're all actors. I don't give a damn what your, excuse me, I don't care what your name is, is that we're all actors and we're all trying to do the same thing. Brother, I had a scene. You should have seen. You'll love this one. Here, You want to hear a story? Please. I'm, on a, I'm doing a, <laughs> oh my God. I'm doing a show. I'm doing a film. And I'd been doing musical theater, razzmatazz, summer stock. And I got cast in this film with Alan Parker directing. Uh-huh. I know who Alan, Mississippi Burning, yeah. Uh, yeah. great director. Yeah. Uh, really oh. good director. Yeah, probably. yeah. But I'm doing a film with Bridget Fonda, Matthew Broderick, and uh, God bless it. I hate not knowing all these names. Say anything. John Cusack? Yeah. So I'm doing, a, I'm doing this movie, with, and I'm doing a scene. With John Cusack, Matthew Broderick, and Bridget Fonda. I have heard of all of these uh, Yeah, me too. <laughs> and I had to, I, listen, you weren't, I was standing there in front of these people. So we're doing a scene, right? Uh-huh. And I've been doing musical theater for the entire summer, so I'm still in let me give you a curtain call mode. <laughs> Jazz fingers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Jazz fingers, bro. Um, and it's Alan Parker, you know. You, mm-hmm. Yeah, this is not musical theater time. So I did the scene, and by this time I'd established a pretty decent reputation as a one-take Charlie, and I did the scene, and Parker was just not having it. Okay. And he's like, do it again, Tony, but could you turn it, turn it down a notch? So I did, and he goes, um, Cot, Tony, really, you've got you've to pull it back. You've got to pull it back. Um, and the, in the meantime, at the table are sitting Bridget Fonda and John Cusack and Matthew Broderick. I mean, I couldn't even reach out to, to Broderick and go, brother, you understand where I'm coming from. Um, he was like, no, I'm reading the script. It's called Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, see? <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to do it, though. <laughs> uh, you know, and I'm doing... So I ended up having to do seven takes of it before I got it right. And on the, on the fifth take, at this point, I'm frustrated with myself. And I'm like, well, if he, don't want, if he wants me to take it to nothing, brother, I'll take it to nothing. Okay. That's exactly what I did. I took it to absolute nothing. I mean, you could have put a, a dime store dummy where I was standing and gotten more. Talking scenery. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Talking <laughs> scenery. That's exactly right. And Palmer, but Parker goes, Cut. Well, it, you're going to have to bleep this. Um, well, it seems as if we've succeeded in scaring the shit out of Tony. <laughs> <laughs> I so, will not bleep that. <laughs> yeah. But it was hysterical, and you know, uh, we had to do. We did the sixth take, and I turned it up a little bit more. And he was it, but it, t- it took me seven takes to get that right, and especially working with Alan Parker. I was like, oh god. Yeah. But Academy Award nominated director. Yeah. Yes, see. Yes. But he, I'm sure he remembered it. God knows he would have to, because it was frustrating for him as it was for me. And they were really cool about it. This is weird. But I actually do, I have heard of another Alan Parker story. I listened to this podcast called The Tobolowsky Files back in the day about this actor named Stephen Tobolowsky, who was married to Beth Henley, who wrote Crimes of the Heart, and is a very accomplished character, actor. And he, and he said that when he was doing Mississippi Burning, that Alan Parker, he, he, was, he, he was in like two scenes. He was brilliant, but he was only in two scenes. He's a character, it was a small character part. And Alan Parker kind of took him 
through everything. I was like, well, well, Stephen, how would you shoot this scene? You know, how would you do this setup? Mm-hmm. And it was just like, and Stephen didn't know how to respond to that because I'm like, this guy is asking me how I would shoot this scene. Or what if I tell him something that's stupid? You know, yeah. so it's got to be intimidating. Yeah, it is. And but at the same time, you got to give the man kudos for taking this little bit actor who was on his set and doing taking those the, yeah. seven takes. Yeah. Um, not only to get what he wanted, but to get what he wanted from me. Um, and that taught me, if nothing else, patience. Um, it was, I didn't have that when I first started directing because I, it hadn't sunk in yet. Because um, when I first started directing, I'm sure some of the folks out here remember, I was a jerk. I got you late. So yeah. I, I Just know. for context, Alan Parker has directed uh, Evita, yeah. uh, The Life of David Gale, Angela's Ashes, yeah. uh, The Road to Wellville. And Mississippi Burning, which is a, a Midnight Express. Come on. Uh, just just for a little bit of context there. Yeah. So transitioning into uh, you arriving here, tell me, tell me how that happened. I know. That- so I, by the time I'd been doing all this stuff, I was doing stage, I was doing film, I was doing television, I was doing the teaching thing, and I got burnt out. I mean literally having people call you up and say, can you be in Atlanta tomorrow? Can you be in Charleston tomorrow night? Can you be, you know what I'm saying? After a while, there's, if there's no rest at all, you turn it into a giant French fry. And I turned it into a giant French fry. Um, And there was, as there always is, there is an impetus to any major change in life. So I was given that impetus. Um, And it just so happened that at that time, my dad and my sister both were building houses. And I'd been doing tech work and set building and all that kind of good, happy stuff. And I knew my way around tools and carpentry and yada, yada. So I decided to come up here and give them a hand. And I did. Uh, I actually got a chance to lay bricks for the first time, which was very cool. Um, but I did. I came back up here and to give myself some family time and to give myself a break and not be around it so much um, so that it didn't turn into more than a career. Do you know what I mean? It get, there's a difference between a career and an obsession. Mm-hmm. Um, and it felt like it was becoming less of a career and more, than a, more as an obsession. Mm. Um, and it felt like I had less and less control over that. So I went, you know, I got to take a break and get back my control over what I'm doing. So I did. Um, and I didn't do anything. Gosh, I'm a, I didn't do anything performance-related, including teach. Gosh, it must be for a good six months. And then, I can't remember who it was, but it was somebody in my family had mentioned that there was this thing over, there was this little theater over in Smithfield that were getting ready to do some kind of an audition or something. So I was like, I don't know, man. I don't know if I really want to do this. But, it, you know, it's community theater. It's a small place. I don't, I don't, have, to, I don't have to turn it on. Right. You know what I mean? Um, and I came down and auditioned. Uh, and I met some of the people. And when I did, I recognized almost immediately they were doing it for the same reason that I originally decided to do it, which was that they loved it and they needed to do it. 
So I was like, well, okay, I got some people who really love what they're doing. They need to do what they're doing, and they're not asking a whole lot. Just to just to become part of what it is that we're doing. Mm-hmm. So I did. What show was that? God. It um, wasn't Little Shop, was it? No, no, no. Good God, no. no he, he was doing other stuff for that. It was the what's the what's the one where the the uh, where the guys had to dry, dress up as girls. Oh, it's community theater. Got to narrow that down. <laughs> no, no, uh, <laughs> no, it's the one the lingerie sales people. Because I think the first thing that I did was I came in and I offered my services to help build the sets. Mm-hmm. I think that's what originally I did because that was probably where they needed the most help at that time. Um, it was Jim and uh, Scott. Yeah, it was Jim and Scott. It was the Jim and Scott show, and they were listen. They did beautiful work. Uh, God Almighty, did they do beautiful work? But it was they were doing it by them damn selves. Right. They needed some help. And boy, howdy! And I was like, man, I can hold a two by four. Mm-hmm. So I, I started doing that. Um, and then I started the quality to see the quality of the shows that they were doing, and it wasn't that they were like you know. Tony Award level shows, but they were, but boy, did they love doing it. Right. Being a part of the performing arts and entertainment industry for as long as I have, one of the things that you recognize is that in some places there's always going to be clicks. But man, at that point, I was like in my 20s. No, yeah, I was in my late 20s, getting, getting ready to go into my 30s. I was like, you know, I'm not in high school anymore. I don't need clicks. Yeah. Um, and that's the last thing I want to get involved in. And one of the things I found here was that that wasn't here. Mm-hmm. That it really was like walking into somebody's home uh, and them saying, there's a chair, grab it and pull up. Um, <laughs> do you want a biscuit and a cup of coffee? We got yeah. one. <laughs> um, yeah. And that's the way it's always been. And from that moment, I was like, I don't care whatever you guys want to do. Let me know what it is and I'll help be part of it. Um, it has to be. It has to grow and it has to be kept the way it is. No, not kept the way it is, but that spirit has to remain regardless yeah. of what we do. Yes. Yeah, I think, I think that what you said right there is very important. Yes, there, changes will happen. Yeah. See, shows will evolve. Yeah. Uh, but that spirit has to remain the same. And it has. I mean, I've been here now, gosh, 20-some years on 30 I don't know um but a long time and it has remained that way the whole way it's always been less about about doing uh, billions and billions of dollars and making sure that everybody and their brother got a button uh, a button a seat it really has been about bringing everybody together sharing stories um (laughs) sharing music sharing that's been what it's about sharing um whether you've been on the stage, off the stage, or in the seats, that's really been what it's about this whole time. Um, and that's one of the things that I'm, I'm happy to see that has never changed. And I'm hoping that it doesn't ever. We're trying, trying <laughs> our best. All right, Noose Little Pod listeners, we hope you've enjoyed our conversation with the great Tony Pender. We know we sure did, which is why we are splitting this interview into two parts. That's right, it's going to be our second ever two-parter. Tune in two weeks from now and hear more from this interview. But for now, we thank you for listening, and please don't be afraid to tell us what you think of the podcast. Hit us up on the News Little Theater Facebook page or drop us a review on Apple Podcast. We'd sure like to hear from you, the audience, on how we can make the show better.
Credits for the show, your host and creator is Matt Gore. That's me. My producer and editor is Mita Tool. That's me. Music is by Cody Walker. Uh, please go look up Cody on uh, Cody Walker Music on YouTube. And he's also on Cody Walker Music on Facebook as well. He's local, so uh, and he's got a couple of albums out. So why don't you give him a listen? You know, uh, easy listening, John, John Denver type of uh, guitar voice, that Cody Walker. All right. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.